Constellation, Episode 2, Art and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Twat, shouted Mary, as the Volkswagen Golf almost pushed her bike into a parked car. And immediately she felt ashamed. Not for swearing, she loved swearing, but for doing it in English. She'd been learning Dutch for three years and had studied Dutch swearing extensively. But swearing is a reflex, a gut reaction to something and old habits die hard. It was complicated. Shit and fuck worked fine around here. A sign of globalisation. Even Dutch Muslim teenage girls said, Oh my God, in English. But twat didn't really work. Cut was the equivalent of cunt, but used completely differently. It usually meant shitty or fucking, as in kutweer for shitty weather, or ik heb de kut tram gemist, I missed the fucking tram. Here in The Hague, there was a local speciality. Wishing someone an illness. Krijg de typhus. Catch typhoid. Or krijg de cholera. Catch cholera. They were obviously historical. But the worst was krijg de kanker. It was useful having a teenager in the family to point out the subtleties. Kanker was a useful word that could be added to just about anything. Kankertram. Kanker computer, kanker polizzi, and illnesses could be added up for emphasis. Krijg the tearing kanker typhus wife, which was probably what the boy racer in the golf was muttering under his breath. Mary's favourite though was krijg tite, grow tits. This was, as her son Tim had pointed out, not wishing someone a hormone imbalance or simply more maturity, but was in fact an expression of total astonishment, a bit like, shut up, Craig now, Tita. Mary had been trying to read Belgian novels, thinking, perhaps misguidedly, that they were better written than Dutch books. And she'd wondered over gems like God for de non de milliards non de jus, a Flemish and French clusterfuck. And, thinking of Belgium, she was arriving at the train station now, she was off to meet Carl, who was probably still in the Eurostar. They'd been trying to meet up forever, and although they only lived about two hours away from each other by train, it seemed impossible to sync up. Mary had last seen Carl in the States. She'd visited his studio, which was stunning, big and airy, with actual live assistants. Carl said he was going to Art Rotterdam, and Mary had a day off. She hadn't been to an art fair in years, 
Actually, she hated art fairs, but it could be fun going around with Carl. When they meet in the café of the hectic art fair, they hug for at least half a minute. And then they do what they always do, talk about art and politics. She's envious of the way that he actually manages to live from his art, conscious of the fact that, being a filmmaker, she's not really an artist, especially now that she's so involved in the NGO. Carl, on the other hand, is slightly jealous that Mary has stuck to her politics, her ethics. And she makes work that seems, well, real. It's about real things, and it's made for real people. Not like most of the stuff here, he thinks, looking around. Mary tells him about camping with anti-fracking women in Lancashire, about driving protesters to coal-fire power stations, and how she feels that her filmmaking gets in the way stops her truly engaging. But just look at all this, says Carl, getting enthusiastic, waving his arms around. Just look at the rich bastards out shopping here. You never guess that half these artists make political art projects that are supposedly critical and that they look forward to the demise of capitalism in their coffee breaks. You try to be ethical, to be true to something, to yourself, and then you look at your life or at least your working conditions, and you think, shit. When is political art really political? asks Mary. What has to happen to elevate it to the level that it really starts to have an effect on the world? Carl thinks for a moment. Gustav Metzger wrote a great piece about that. He proposed the idea that artists would form guerrilla units and go and assassinate art dealers, critics and museum directors. Fuck. You'd be arrested immediately if you wrote that today. Imagine, on Twitter? Yeah, I think this was in the 70s. And earlier, in the 60s, he had another manifesto where he says something like, you stinking fucking cigar-smoking bastards and you scented fashionable cows who deal in works of art. <laughs> Mary laughs. You could make a painting with that as a quote. Yeah. No, even better. Imagine a huge neon sign. Like Nauman's, the true artist helps the world by revealing mystic truths. Maybe I'll make one. Somebody would buy it, says Mary. Of course, some stinking cigar-smoking bastard would. And that's what's so fucked up about the art world. It's really hyper-capitalist. No one really cares about content or meaning. It's only about value, or speculating on the future value. Yeah, people just buy to invest, like stocks and shares. I remember that too. After art school, it made me kind of sick that even video art, which was seen as so radical, so independent, kind of got absorbed by the market. Recuperated, adds Carl. Yeah, and it's nothing new. I was reading Emile Zola's L'Oeuvre. He says exactly the same thing. There's some dealer in his book who simply treats the paintings as if they were bonds or shares or something. It infuriates the artists. But at the same time, 
They want him to make money for them, so they're caught in a kind of a catch-22. And so, Carl, the million-dollar question, how do you relate to this? Your work's always been kind of political, and you've done well in the galleries and stuff, right? Hmm, of course. It's a problem. I try as much as possible to keep myself away from all this, but in the end, I need to eat too. But I'm always trying to subvert it. Mary goes off to the Louvre while Carl tries to track down Thomas, whose Berlin gallery shows his work and who'd promised to hang something at the fair. He peers at the tiny writing on the folder, rummages in his bag for his glasses and still finds himself squinting. Who the fuck prints green on red? At last, he orients himself and realises he's just walked straight past it. Galerie Zenzimmer. He looks around the walls of the booth. There's a large colour photograph of a naked woman with thick blue paint covering her head and what looks like blood splashes on the surface of the photo. Sitting on a plinth are two silvery objects that kind of look like breasts or enlarged thimbles, perhaps, with a cord between them, like a gilded, rehashed Ava Hesse. On the other wall are hanging what look like birth certificates, but it's all written in Chinese script. Ah, he remembers, they must be by Li Hom. Carl feels slightly depressed. His work's not hanging, and Thomas is nowhere to be seen. Then Carl recognises the assistant, who's just come out of the little storeroom. No, you just missed Thomas. He went off to lunch with some clients. I thought he was going to hang my work. Um, Well, we've got two prints in the store. You know we like to re-hang halfway through the fair. Give a fresh look. Yeah, right, thinks Carl. I was just showing them to a Dutch collector a few minutes ago. Look, and your catalogue is here. What have you brought then? Mm, He looks in the stockroom. Let's see. Constellations 139 and 167? Hmm, I didn't even know you'd still got copies of them. Don't you have any more recent ones? Not here, no. Is Lee here? No, he was supposed to be, but he went back to China and got stuck there. Stuck? The virus outbreak. I think he decided to stay with his parents, and they wouldn't let him out. Wow, that's heavy. I should message him, seeing if he's okay. Well, look, I'll come by later, see if Thomas is around. Hope it goes well. Yes, thanks, you too. Enjoy! Cunt thinks Carl, and walks into the next booth. He almost trips over some fibreglass forms filled with earth on his way to peer at what looks like a hand-drawn map of a city. When he gets closer, he sees that it's a print. A giclée print. A poncy name for an inkjet print. 4,050 euros, edition of 10. Christ, he thinks. An artist he's never heard of, and they can get 4,050 for a bloody inkjet. 2,025 with the gallery cut minus the frame, but it's still a sizable amount for an A3 black and white print that basically anyone could make at home. He starts wondering if that's not an interesting model. Sell the rights to people to be able to print work at home. It'd have to be something with blockchains. 
Not that he really understands what that is. It's such a great piece, that, says a voice in his ear. Er, what? Cecile's prints are so sought after at the moment. Carl decides to play along. So, what kind of print is this? Giclée. Mm, Isn't that just inkjet? Uh, Well, uh, it's a similar technology, but of course it's archive quality, acid-free, and it's been printed on the artist's own printer in her studio. Carl laughs. (laughs) I should hope so. So, what do you do? Are you a collector? No, sorry, I'm an artist. The woman's face drops ever so slightly. Oh, then it brightens up. Are you showing here? Yeah, actually, Thomas next door has some of my prints. Carl Vaz is the name. Oh, I'll definitely go and look. Yeah, right, thinks Carl. He finds Mary looking at tiny, expensive Polaroids by Araki. Posh porn, he whispers in her ear. (laughs) I didn't even know you could actually own an Araki, says Mary. But I guess if you have the cash, you can own anything. Did you see anything you liked? asks Carl. No, not really. There's too much to see and there's so much, well, bling, big, in-your-face stuff. I'd never want to have anything like that in my house, she said, pointing at what looks like a gilded turd, although it looks pretty funny. You must know, says Carl, what's going on in China. How do you mean? The art world? The environment? The party? The virus? Oh yeah, that's really fucked up. The authorities are like really cracking down. I couldn't speak to anyone there last week. All the social media was blocked and stuff. Fuck, says Carl. Well, after a while I guess humans will become immune, says Mary. Yeah, but it's not going to stay in China, is it? People are so mobile, it'll be bloody everywhere. I don't know it would spread that quickly. Yeah, but look at SARS, swine fever, bird flu. It went really quick. When was the last time you were over there? China? In the autumn, actually. You see... Maybe you're a carrier. That'd make you typhoid Mary. Carl, you're a hypochondriac and just a little bit paranoid. Yeah, you're right, agrees Carl. But the paranoid will inherit the earth, I reckon. They both smile. Although they see each other so infrequently, when they do, it's like everything fits. They can just banter and argue, but they understand each other perfectly. Or so they think. Although Mary and Carl were studying at the same art school, they'd first met through Dave. Not long after Carl had arrived in Sheffield, Dave had picked him up to go for a drink. He was going to drive him to a pub out of town for a change, but first of all, he wanted to call on the Jimmies. They're medical students, he explained. I've got a present for them. Medical? Yeah, you'll see. Dave driving an old Morris traveller, set off out of town to the northeast, a road that Carl had never seen, but soon turned off the main road into a housing estate of identical grey semis and short terraces. The road wound up and down over hills. He turned left and right and left again, but the houses remained identical. Carl wondered how Dave found his way and asked about the car. His dad used to have one too, and it had slowly fallen to pieces, 
you could see the road through a hole in the floor. Dave told him how, with the help of a friend, it had been cobbled together from a separate chassis and a body from a junkyard. Are you allowed to do that? asked Carl. Well, you have to fiddle the paperwork and chassis numbers and things a bit, but we worked it out, says Dave. They stopped halfway along a terrace of grey pebble-dash houses, each with a door beaten up in a slightly different way. Dave walked up the path and knocked. The door opened and for a moment Carl couldn't see anyone there. It was dark inside and the woman who opened the door was wearing black and had a black bob. Dave seemed suddenly unsure of himself uh, uh, the Jimmies? he stammered. Sure, love, she replied in an incongruously deep northern voice. Don't mind me, I'm the new, um, maid. Carl must have looked aghast because she then winked cheekily at him. Just joking, love, I'm Mary, come in, I'll go and see if they're decent. Dave rolled his eyes at Carl. Come through, she shouted down the corridor. Lord and Lady Jim will receive you now. Dave spluttered a laugh, and they walked down the dark, greasy corridor into the living room at the end. Mary was sitting on the brown sofa. Lord and Lady Jim were sitting on chairs. Carl wasn't sure which was which, but one Jim was wearing a lab coat, perhaps only a lab coat. The other Jim was in jeans and a Leibach t-shirt. Hey Dave, said Jim Labcoat. Don't mind the mess. We're conducting a medical experiment, a cure for the common cold, the holy grail of Western medicine. Except I didn't have one before we started, and I do now. The Jimmies finished sentences for each other. A conversation which was actually a monologue. Like Siamese twins, thought Carl. It's okay, I'm a doctor. No, you're not. Not yet, anyway. He suddenly realised that both Jimmies were connected to hospital drips on stands behind the chairs. You know, said Mary, someone I went to school with right, her dad was a doctor and he also experimented on himself, looking for a cold cure. Hormones, I think. But he didn't find it, I guess, said Jim Labcoat. No, but he did grow breasts, said Mary. Little ones, but you know, real titties. There was an awkward silence. Pass us the stash, said Jim Labcoat. I need a pill. Oh, sorry, we didn't introduce ourselves. This is Jim, and this is Jim. Carl, said Carl. Pleased to meet you. He's a filmmaker, added Dave. Oh, then you probably know this, said Jim T-shirt, pointing at the TV. On the screen, some black guys were hanging out in a scrapyard. One had a book in his hand, another a machine gun. It looked vaguely familiar to Carl. One plus one, Goddard. Carl looked blank. He'd seen Goddard films, of course, but not this, otherwise known as Sympathy for the Devil. Turn it up. It's not a question of right or left. It's a question of black. The image cut to a recording studio. Musicians hanging out, trying to record. Well, and taste. I've been around.
around here for many a long, long year. So many a man, so and fade. Pleased to meet y'all. The Stones. Jim paused the videotape, freezing an image of Jagger leering at the camera. Brought you something, says Dave, pulling a large clear bottle with no label out of his bag. Oh, you didn't, really? Kashasha, guaranteed genuine Brazilian kerosene. My mate brought me a jerry can of the stuff. I have to keep it in the garage, it's so explosive. Mary stood up. I guess this calls for ice and lime, or at least, well, maybe I can find Rose's lime cordial. Yeah, go for it. Here, have one of these, said Jim T-shirt, and passed Carl the tin box with a red cross on the top. It was full of pills, some in boxes, some in plastic packets, and some loose. Uh, which one, said Carl. I just had a blue one. It's new, not on the street yet straight out of the lab. It'll sharpen you up, but it's mellow, not like speed. Give us one, said Dave. Oh, but I'm driving. You drive better. Anyway, love, you're not going to be driving anywhere after one of these cocktails, said Mary, who just reappeared with glasses full of ice and a bottle of roses. Twenty minutes later, the pills, washed down with generous amounts of cachacha, had started to work. Jim restarted the video. Turn it up, turn it up. But on LSD. This is my favourite bit. On LSD. On LSD you, you begin, begin to, to die. die. And, and that's, that's the way, the way you get this, you get this extraordinary, extraordinary sense of, sense of revelation. revelation. Perhaps you, you taste the order of your own death on such a trip. Yeah. The Jimmies stayed on their chairs, twitching, while Carl, Dave and Mary attempted to conger around the room, going woo-hoo, woo-hoo, along to the stones. 